Hey there, welcome to night school. Just a little something different, not planned. Did not plan on having some quiet classical music there in the background, but as I was setting up, it was playing, so why not have a little impromptu intro? Was that intro impromptu? What isn't? What is not impromptu at the moment? I don't know. You know, as much as I like to believe that uh, we're constantly playing a game of improv within a loose structure, the improv is a little more apparent right now, but it's a game of improv in which we seem to be trying to hold still. Sometimes that's a game of improv, trying to stay as still as possible. Uh, it's like a game of freeze or something. Is that, is that a game? <laughs> is that a game? The game of freeze? I know there's freeze tag. Simon says freeze. Simon says go out in the cold and freeze. Simon says pretend you're a snowman. A snowman. There is sort of a wintry feel. I mean, I don't need to tell you, I don't need to tell anybody who's listening that uh, it's smoky out. If you're on the West Coast, if you're paying attention to the news, you know that we have a smoky coast, a smoke world going on. Some places are worse than others. Uh, although where I live, we can't go outside. And it's noticeable. It's physically noticeable, even indoors. You do feel... You can feel the lack of oxygen that you're getting, or the, the lesser amount of oxygen you're taking in. You can feel the physical and mental results. And I don't want this to be too sad of an episode, but I think the, the beginning here, we might hit on a couple sad notes before we go where we're going to go, which is... Someplace I don't know. Actually didn't have a plan in recording. It's just something I feel like doing right now. I'm basically just waiting until I can eat again. I already ate, and I, I need to do something to distract myself. Because there's not much to do right now. There's not a whole lot to do. You can't leave your house. You can't go anywhere. You see people out walking. I saw some people walking their dog, and I thought... You know, I wish I wish that I had the bravery or the courage or the stupidity even to go out walking in this, but it's a bad bad idea cuz you feel it even when you're in, even when you're indoors in a nice uh, fairly sealed home. You know, no home is totally sealed, but you really become aware at the oxygen tank in which you you become aware of the oxygen tank in which you live and it's kind of like that scene from Total Recall where they turn off the oxygen fans the oxygen generators on Mars and everyone starts uh, you know losing energy and you know sitting down against the wall just losing their capacities and it's not quite that bad of course we're not on Mars and they haven't shut down the oxygen generators entirely, but you do feel it. So seeing people walking, I'm just a little surprised because when there was just a little bit of smoke in the air a couple nights ago, I went on a bunch of walks. I went on a couple long walks. I took Batty out for a walk, and it wasn't too bad, even though there was a little haze. But 
It's now gotten to the point where there, there's a heavy fog of war out there. It looks like a fog of war. It's almost like you wake up and you see it, and there's a little bit of a lemony, orangish haze. I don't know why I said lemony. It's not really lemony at all. It's, it's much more of just this light orange haze. But enough about... I don't need to describe it for you. People post photos. Uh, people post photos of it in places that have it far worse than where I live. But a part of me does wish that I was someone where I'm like, yeah, you know, I'm, I'm a warrior. I can go out and exist in the smoke. But the reality is it's just not something you, you do. I went to the store in it, and you could tell that people were malfunctioning. I was malfunctioning a little bit, but I was aware of my malfunctioning, which I think assisted me in my grocery shopping. I was able to kind of overcompensate in certain ways. You know, when you're aware of the fact that you're malfunctioning, it, it definitely helps you steer yourself. You know, if I lean a little more this way, or you know, you know, this, I mean, it's more mental. It's not a physical. It's not like I was. <laughs> it's not like I was falling down. But you could just feel the difference, and you could see the difference in other people. And you know, it's a scary time in that way. It's scary for all the reasons that people tell you it's scary. But uh, you know, the one side of this that doesn't get discussed quite as much as you would expect is just the mental fallout where people already were malfunctioning when the Coroni Viland initially came. When we all ended up on Coroni Viland, you know, six months ago. People began malfunctioning then in different ways, a lot of it due to fear, a lot of it due to sudden change, adaptation, denial, all, all these things. I'm not going to get Psych 101 about it, but... On just an observational, descriptive level, you could see a degree of malfunction, and you would see it in person, in stores, and you could also see it, of course, if you dig into the internet, where we seem to love to document other people's malfunctions, and where many of our own mental malfunctions manifest in the form of opinions, And, and just simply our choices, the things we choose to look at, are also a byproduct of our malfunction. But then when you throw this in, when you throw this smoke world on top of it, uh, there's an actual physical malfunction. You're getting less oxygen. And of course, you're a little bit sad, maybe a lot a bit sad. You know, I haven't felt totally consumed by it. You know, I got a text message from a good friend of mine in Portland who had who'd said... You know, all my favorite places are burning. You know, it's inevitable, but, you know, it's sad. And I just said, yeah, you know, I mean, you, you really, all you can do is rely on your strength of soul right now. I don't know if that's what he wanted to hear. I don't know if that's what anybody ever wants to hear, but that's what has value to me during times like these. And there's a lot of things that could make you sad, or a lot of people are mad, of course. But for me, you know, the things that uh, that stand out to me are, are definitely more, uh, they, they fall more into the sad category. You know, when I was driving to the store, I saw a missing pet poster, and I only caught a glimpse of it, but I knew which pet it was for. And I didn't want to, but I made sure to look at it 
on the way back. I made sure to look closer, and sure enough, it was this Siamese cat who started hanging around the neighborhood a lot named Mr. Daisy. I don't know if I've mentioned Mr. Daisy on this show, but he had started, he took a great interest in Batty. He lives on a house down at the end of the street. He lives in a house down there. An old lady lives there. And I I found out his name was Mr. Daisy because I heard her calling him. But he was just a very curious social cat, and he would follow us. He would actually creep right behind Batty, and Batty had no idea what to do. This this beautiful Siamese cat kind of stalking Batty just out of sheer curiosity, no aggression. And I saw this cat being very friendly to people, but a, a little too out there. You know, some cats are outside, they wander, they'll hang out in their driveway or on the sidewalk. But I had noticed Mr. Daisy was pretty wild as far as his, you know, crossing the street, hanging out over here, you know, and the lady who owns him, she even said that. She even used the word wild to describe him. And I didn't get the impression Mr. Daisy was wild like a a feral animal is wild, just that he kind of had his own set of rules. And uh, sure enough, it didn't say Mr. Daisy on the missing pet flyer, but it was a Siamese cat, and there's only one Siamese cat who looks like that in the neighborhood. So hopefully Mr. Daisy turns up. But, uh, you know, it's sad. It's very sad for me because I had taken a liking to Mr. Daisy and... You know, it's one of those things where if he if if he's hurt or dead, well, if he's hurt, hopefully he is dead. But if if he was if he was killed, you know, you, you just have to hope it was a fellow animal, and that's an interesting thought. I was thinking about that thought because sometimes you think about your own thoughts, which is an interesting sort of meta process that we do, where we're capable of thinking of our own thoughts. I know I'm blowing your mind here. I'm actually thinking about the fact that I think about my own thoughts. Here it goes. It's endless. Teenager, teenage, uh, (laughs) teenage level um, (laughs) thoughts. Teenager on mushrooms. Whoa. But, uh, you know, I was just thinking about that idea of how, as a human, that we, at least decent people, in my opinion, prefer to hear that an animal was killed by another animal rather than by a car, or a sick human who deliberately hurt an animal or something like that. It's just a strange thing that when we when we see that an animal is missing or we find out an animal has been killed, we hope that it was killed by a species other than our own. And I say that as somebody who eats meat. You know, I say that as somebody who, you know, occasionally kills a bug Certain, I, I mean, I, I had to hire an exterminator to kill some bees since I'm very allergic, some wasps. So I'm certainly not guilt-free when it comes to death. But with pets and, and these animals that we consider cute or just these animals that we cherish in some way, it's interesting that we hope it wasn't our own species that was responsible, whether it was a car, whether it was, you know... a some sort of pathological, violent human. It's just funny that, you know, my hope is that a a missing animal was killed by a coyote or something. But, you know, I I hope Mr. Daisy turns up, actually. 
you know, since I did see him wandering around quite a bit, maybe he's just on a little vacation, but I, I was hesitant to even mention it on here because it is a, a sad note among several sad notes, kind of a minor key start to this whole episode between Smoke World and missing Mr. Daisy, the friendly Siamese cat. But that's uh, I don't feel overwhelmingly sad right now, despite the circumstances. You know, it's a bummer that you can't leave the house. This time of year is beautiful, this transition between summer and fall, especially in Washington State. And obviously it now brings about these potential... Um, what's that thing that causes smoke? What's that thing called that causes all this smoke? I can't even remember. Oh, yeah. I'm not even going to use the word. I'm not even going to use the word of the thing that causes smoke. Out of respect. Not out of, I'm, I'm going to not use the word for it, not out of disrespect, but out of a certain form of respect, because I do respect it. I do respect the thing that causes smoke, because it is so powerful. It is so useful. It is so many things. To quote a friend of mine, it is infinitely faceted. My friend Marco referred to this thing that I'm referring to as infinitely faceted uh, about 15 years ago, and that always stayed with me. Because, yeah, beyond staring at it, at its many visual facets as you watch it, its uses, its impact, everything about it is infinitely faceted. But, uh, you know, as far as, you know, taking an attitude, you know, you see people and they're just, they're very caught up. And maybe I'm the one who's wrong or maybe I'm only partially wrong and they're only partially right or they're... More than likely, we're all a little bit wrong, and we're all a little bit right, and we're a, a whole lot of something else. But, you know, the second the smoke appears, you hear you hear, and you see people saying, you know, we gotta vote this out of office! You see this? You see what's in the sky? We gotta vote this out of office! You know, I understand the idea that people think some politicians or political parties are going to better serve our ability to escape this hot, hot doom that seems to be increasing. No matter what you believe the cause is, no matter what name you want to call it, you know, we're having experiences that we didn't have before, sure. But you can see where people almost, they see the eye of Sauron. People see, it's almost like people look at the sky and it's just like, oh my God, Donald Trumpsfeld has turned into a, a smoky apparition. Donald Trumpsfeld's in the sky. He's, he's taken to the sky. He's spread himself out. He's now an apparition that, that's taken over the entire West Coast. We gotta vote this this thing out of office. 
We got to vote this thing out of the sky. And I do, like I said, I do understand that people see certain politicians as more conscientious and driven toward making some sort of environmental change that could slow down or prevent this future, this present, this present that seems like a future and might continue to be one. You know, I understand that. So, you know, I'm not mocking... I'm not trying to insult people's intelligence, but you do see where people have a person who they can blame for everything. And sometimes that's their dad or their mom or their brother or their sister or a friend or an enemy or a coworker or a neighbor or even the person they married or the person they're dating or the, their ex-girlfriend or their ex-wife or, you know, they're really nasty, their own child, you know, but it's not uncommon to find people who have someone that they, they can blame for everything. Oh my God, my life has just gotten so much better since I found this person I can blame for everything. And yeah, sometimes it is a person in their life. I mean, there's the mother-in-law stereotype. Ah, oh, I have to go see my mother-in-law. My mother-in-law has turned into a smoky apparition that is floating throughout the atmosphere of the West Coast and is preventing us from going outside. See that smoky haze that looks like the fog of war out your window? That's my mother-in-law. My mother-in-law caused it. When I was driving to the store, I saw a girl sitting on her patio smoking a cigarette, and I liked that. It's nice to see someone just out in the midst of this smoky fog, this foggy smoke, also just sucking in an individual strand, an individual, a little... uh, well, it's a cigarette. I was trying to think of some creative way of describing it. She has her own little, you know, her own little piece of the smoke to suck in. I was impressed by it. I found Somehow I found that impressive. I was just like, because you'd almost think that there wouldn't be a need to smoke cigarettes when the sky is filled with smoke. But obviously it's not tobacco Obviously the air isn't filled with nothing but tobacco It's a different kind of smoke. So she's still got to have her tobacco, her tobacco. But the visual of it was impressive to me, just seeing somebody smoking a cigarette while surrounded by smoke world. Still got to have your cigarette even when you're in smoke world. It's a merit badge. Smoked a cigarette while standing in the midst of smoke world. Sounds like a theme park. But yeah, you know, I I don't feel terribly sad, despite feeling lightheaded, despite being impacted, and, and much less impacted by other people, but still impacted, and, you know, seeing little blips of sadness, seeing, you know, um, 
missing pet posters for a, for a cat that I've grown to appreciate in this neighborhood. I, I don't feel consumed by sadness or anything like that. I'm just sort of, I'm getting through it. And, uh, you know, I'm not... You know, as you, as you've heard on recent episodes, you know there's you know the the humor's been sharp, sharp as in uh, you know a little bit uh, a little bit of a stabbing motion. Although I mean, when you're talking about holograms that recreate celebrity deaths, who are you really jabbing? Who are you really stabbing? Nobody. I feel like there's something healthy to that. I feel like there's something healthy to taking that approach to, you know, the the way that we turn people into icons. And especially the way that we use technology to try to recreate them in some bastardized way. It's more a mockery of that than it is somebody's individual tragedy. Not that I'm trying to explain it away. But yeah, you do have to maintain your sense of humor when life is punctuated by down notes. And you you know, you also have to look for you you have to look for I don't know. I mean, I, I don't know what I'm talking about as far as looking for, but I mean, right now I feel like I'm maintaining something. I feel like I'm maintaining just the bare bones of my own spiritual balance. I mean, I think you could probably kind of tell the show was going in this direction. And, uh, you know, what what does that mean? I mean, it means I'm, you know, meditating, although less focused on immer- immersive transcendence and more just focused on basic little just sitting repeating what I need to repeat internally, breathing right, showing devotion, be it to the deity or the dharma, be it to something else. It's more an act of maintenance, but also one of devotion. And if it does veer into something more immersive and transcendental, well, that's wonderful too. I've had moments like that, but they've just been not something I'm looking for. And I find that I less and less try to look for that. I'm trying to look, or sorry, not not trying to look, but I'm trying less to look for those sorts of moments because those moments are wonderful and they in a strange way make you feel like you've accomplished something when you're sitting there with your eyes closed and your hands cupped and your posture is right and your breathing is when when your breathing is is just um i don't know you know when you're breathing right but not overly conscious of the way you are breathing. And you suddenly find yourself having visions. Or you suddenly find yourself no longer in your present reality, but you're not sleeping. 
you've just reached some sort of moment of transcendence, and it may last for a second, it may last longer. You might think that you sat there for 10 minutes, and it turns out you sat there for 50. You know, time really does shift when you have those transcendental moments. But, you know, I've been looking for that less and less, whereas that was what I looked for a lot early on. I think those are those sorts of breakthroughs that get you in, but they're not necessarily what makes you stay. And I'm talking, of course, about meditation, but I think that same way of thinking applies to maintaining any kind of spiritual balance. And uh, you know, part of that spiritual balance for me, too, is sometimes just dragging that jagged edge across reality. It's being irreverent. It's, you know, making harsh jokes. And it's not that I need to justify those. It's not that I need to justify a laugh in the context of some sort of spiritual balance, but it just sort of fits that way. It just sort of fits in that way. You can kind of feel it balancing. You don't want to tip too far in that direction. You don't want your life to be completely that. I mean, it's just like seeing sad things. It's just like waking up to a sky filled with smoke, seeing that the cat that you've grown to know in the neighborhood is missing. You know, it's things like that where it tilts the balance for a second, but there is a balance. Your entire world doesn't just sink that way. And it's the same for feeling good. You know, it's easy come, easy go with everything. Because the beauty of letting the good things go when it's time for them to go, letting the good feelings leave when they're ready to leave, is that you can do the same for bad feelings. You can do the same for the full spectrum of feelings, emotions, observations, everything. Everything there is can easily come and go. And that doesn't mean that you'll be left with nothing most of the time. There are so many things to react to and respond to that the moments where you do feel nothing will still be limited and therefore a luxury. Which is why it's not a bad goal if you're going to have goals to seek that sort of emptiness, that neutrality. And it doesn't matter how you seek it. You know, for some people, it's more of this kind of cerebral, intellectual, Greek stoicism or Pyrrhonism, where you get there through facts and logic. Oh, I'm just not an emotional person because I, I think in terms of facts and logic, and I like reading ancient philosophy, and that's how I achieve my equanimity. That appeals to me less, which is why I'm glad that 
my own direction has led me through, you know, that more Gnostic spiritual approach where the, where it's less of, it, it's less based around some sort of intellectual reasoning over what's the best way to be or what's the best approach to take to life and it's just going with the grain. And if the grain happens to parallel Stoicism or Pyrrhonism, some of the ancient Persian beliefs that are very similar to what the Greeks believed, Zoroastrianism, however you say it. I'm not an expert. But, you know, these things parallel each other, and there's a reason why many people over many different eons, however however long an eon is, I'm not sure. I'm not sure if an eon has a specific length. I don't even care what the length of an eon is. I'm going to say it anyway. But, uh, you know, these things, as far as I'm concerned, as far as my life goes, these things are eons. But when you find that certain people have paralleled each other and they've had similar experiences, and at the end of the day, even though some people do take this approach where they'll read a book and have a light bulb moment, I think at the end of the day, I think all of these things are truly discovered in that Gnostic experiential way, where knowledge is a product of experience. And it's not simply your brain analyzing information and deciding that something makes sense or appeals to you in some sort of, you know, that it appeals to your taste or your aesthetic sense. Because we certainly have those, you know, we have, we have things that appeal to us in that way. But the things that, you know, impact us the most, that I think do strengthen your soul are those things that come to you in the form of epiphany, gnosis, some sort of experience that transcends physical sensation for sure, but also physical observation Those are the things that I feel, if not inform the soul, activate it in some way. Because I use that phrase a lot, activation. I use that term a lot, activation. Because that's how it feels. That's how gnosis feels to me. That's what knowledge is to me. It's more like activation than it is some sort of new data. I acquired some new data. Although to someone else it might feel that way. To someone else it might feel like brand new data. Whereas to me, you know, what I'm talking about in this context is the activation of something that feels like it was already there, 
but may have just been dormant or hidden, obscured, occulted in some way. And it's funny to think about the term occult, you know, because it refers to that which is hidden, and it makes me think of that Neville Goddard quote that I love, which is, faith is loyalty to unseen reality. And Neville Goddard, you know, he has, you know, I'm certainly not an expert or anything close to it when it comes to Neville Goddard, but he appeals to occultists. He also appealed to Ronald Reagan. (laughs) Ronald Reagan, I believe, was a fan. Or maybe that was Manly P. Hall. It was one of those people. I think he was a Manly P. Hall fan, not Neville Goddard. I don't don't even, it doesn't make a difference. Um, But faith is loyalty to unseen reality. And, you know, some people try to access that unseen reality or, if not access it, gain greater awareness of it, gain a deeper relationship to it through occultism, through the hidden. And while I never participated in orthodox occultism, you know, some of my interests certainly danced around occultism, and I've done my own reading, and even a little bit of my own practice related to occultism, but at some point, occultism seemed to keep things hidden. I was trying to think of a better way to say that, but what I started to see from occultism, and I think I knew it all along, which is why I didn't ever dive headfirst into what might be somewhat contradictory, but I, I still, I mean, you can see that it, it there is there is an orthodox occultism that people practice, and there are many different forms of it. But I think one of the reasons why I always stayed a little bit away while maintaining interest is that it seemed to keep the hidden hidden. And it seemed to take joy in that. And it it seems to attract people who believe in, not just believe in, but who celebrate the idea of secret societies and this precious knowledge that must be kept in a locked box and only used under the right circumstances, which I believe is smart. I think it's better to err toward that or learn the value of that, to learn restraint. Because you can see where people go haywire when they don't have that sense of restraint, when they don't have that sense of reverence, when they don't know how to put something in a box, or even lock it up for that matter. And that's especially true for spiritual matters, or magic, whatever word you want to use. Reality, I mean, that's really uh, just as synonymous with those other words to me these days. The word reality is just as synonymous with um, words like spirituality as magic is, maybe even more so. And I say that maybe because I don't see these things as something that needs to be kept hidden or something shadowy, something secret. You know, I I don't think of it that way anymore. 
And maybe that's what led me more to some of these more well-known religions and spiritual practices that were in front of me all along, but I may have rejected them because they were more obvious. They were more out there. They, they were less aesthetically appealing. You know, um, people in robes with beads, chanting, not that I participate in that. Churches, again, not that I participate in that. But I did become more drawn to the knowledge behind those practices. And the language that comes from that knowledge. There's the quote, I came across it again, I know I talked about it on an episode here, but... Uh, I may not be getting it exactly right, but that's the nice thing about this stuff, is you can paraphrase it. It's not about reciting things perfectly, but I think this is fairly close. But the quote, uh, you know, just one moment of Zen meditation is enough to erase beginningless crimes. That's the kind of thing I wish I could have written as some kind of lyric. You know what I mean? That's the kind of thing that I I wish I could have come up with to use for something cool, something artistic, something edgy or dark. But there it is, just in a piece of Buddhist writing. One moment of Zen meditation is enough to erase beginningless crimes. Or for that matter, the Neville Goddard quote I just referenced, which is, faith is loyalty to unseen reality. That's so good. And and so, it taps into a feeling, you know, that when I hear that quote, the reason why I like it so much, the reason why I've repeated it on here, is it very much taps into a feeling but a feeling that I know. Something that feels like an experience. Some form of gnosis. You know, there's an, an Alan Watts quote I want to read here. wasn't planning on reading it today, but I just happened to have it on hand. And since I'm quoting people, since I'm quoting people, I thought I'd quote Alan Watts, and referring to Carl Jung, he says, Jung was able to point out that to the degree that you condemn others and find evil in others, you are, to that degree, unconscious of the same thing in yourself, or at least of the potentiality of it. There are people who are unconscious of their own dark side, and they project that darkness outwards, and they say... There is the darkness, and it is not in me. I am justified. But to the degree that an individual becomes conscious that the evil is as much in himself as the other, to this same degree they are not likely to project it onto others. Maybe a water is wet statement to many people, but sometimes... Variations of the obvious can be the exact thing you want to hear or say. 
And I feel that that one is particularly good and particularly relevant in a time of moral panic and hysteria. Always relevant, but particularly right now when people seem to be finding the entirety of their meaning in the form of justified finger-pointing and very little reflection on their own dark side, at least from what I can see. You know, I have no idea what goes on inside of people, but when you see the the degree of finger-pointing that is going on right now, you really do have to question how much self-awareness there is in that and how much projection there is. But I like the I like that he puts in a little measurement. You know, I like that there's a measurement in there. The degree that you condemn others and find evil in others, you are to that degree unconscious of the same thing in yourself. So it's the same degree that you see that in others is the same degree that you do not see it in yourself. And I believe that's true. And he's, of course, referring to Jung. It's an Alan Watts quote, but he's referencing a Jungian idea. And uh, there's also a Carl Jung quote I might as well read, too, while, while we're quoting Alan Watts. Talking about Young, we might as well quote Young, which is, People will do anything, no matter how absurd, in order to avoid facing their own soul. One does not become enlightened by imagining figures of light, but by making the darkness conscious. So a similar idea there. A similar idea there. And that seems to be something that people fear. Making the darkness conscious. By making it conscious, you maintain some level of control over it, and that control is exercised in the form of awareness, really. I think some people feel that by making the darkness conscious, they will have no control over it, but by the act of making it conscious, you are exercising control. You are using it as a tool. It's like I talked about in a recent episode, running errands in the abyss. And we're living in a time where running real errands feels that way. When I went to the grocery store today in the smoke-filled world, when I drove through the smoke and I saw people blatantly malfunctioning, organic malfunction. People, you know, running into you. People seeming lost. They're not getting enough oxygen because they've been living in smoke for days. There's carbon monoxide in the air. There is the added, the added, um, you know, just uh, what fear does to you. I'm not even sure what to call it other than fear. You have scared people who are physically and mentally affected by bad air, the very thing they need to think clearly and operate cleanly. And 
while we've been running errands in the abyss for six months now to some degree, we've been going to these places with these added protections and these added procedures because there is disease lurking everywhere. I did that today with the added element of the fog of war everywhere, smoke everywhere. So of course people would malfunction. And I don't blame them. I felt no ill will toward them. I felt uncomfortable. I felt wary. I, I, I felt a level of um, concern about every person that I came near. But there was no ill will, fortunately. I did not feel ill will. And if you do, you do. But I was also aware of that, and I think that's where the idea of making the darkness conscious comes in. Not that I'm some expert in this, but I, I do think that I've made the darkness conscious many times over. And I've indulged in it, especially at previous times in my life. And as I, you know, as recent episodes show, I still do. I still indulge in that darkness, still make the darkness conscious. I still drag a jagged edge over a smooth surface now and again. But it can be helpful. It can be helpful when you run those errands. Because there are some people who they're out running an errand and they don't even realize it, but during that errand, during that little trip into the abyss to get something, to buy some bananas, to buy some salt, to, to buy a plastic bag, a bunch of frozen chicken nuggets, while they're running that errand into the abyss, they might turn into a demon temporarily. The darkness might get a hold of them. They didn't make it conscious. And those are the people that I am wary of. It's not just the people that are stumbling into you because they have a smoked-out brain and they're scared and they're not operating at full capacity. It's also the people who are you know, prone to acting out who I don't see many of, but we have this tendency to document them. So if we get online, we, we see a lot of them. Seems to be a popular form of entertainment in recent years. Look at this person freaking out. Look at, look at this. It's another video of a guy freaking out. A girl, look at her, look at this chick. She's freaking out. Look at this girl turning into a demon, probably temporarily. Look at this mob of people behaving like demons. Behaving like the mobs in the Bible who stone people to death. The mobs that still exist in the Middle East who stone people to death. Hey, look, they're throwing things. Oh, here's a video. Here's a cell phone video of a mob throwing things. Some of them rocks. Hey, there's, there's a, a, a modern-day stoning happening. 
in the United States of America. Are those people aware of the degree that they condemn others is unconsciously, you know, the the same degree, you know, it, <laughs> trying to, to quote that Watts quote, but, uh, you know, do they realize that, that that same capacity they have within themselves to throw stones or to throw things or to gang up on people or to have a public outburst? that the the degree that that exists in them is exactly what they are seeing outside of themselves. Hey, buddy. Speaking of seeing things outside, I think Batty probably sees some people walking, which is interesting, some people walking out in the smoke. But uh, that's it's a good segue to something else because I felt like I was just sort of spiraling around the same subject. And I think that... It, Hopefully it was the point that I was making is understood, and it's not even really my point. It's one that far more advanced people have made many times over. People like Carl Jung, people like Alan Watts. It appears in spiritual scripture. Hey, hey, Batman, come on. I know, I know, trust me, I know. People outside in the smoke, what are they thinking? The smoke walkers smoke walkers outside haven't you gotten enough smoke already I applaud people who make an effort to get out in the smoke I just don't know that their bodies can handle it but I did have that thought actually I was like mind over matter as much as I believe in that I'm like my lungs already got fucked up for some reason whether it was Corona Violent or something else my lungs aren't what they were seven months ago do I really need to be uh, taken in carbon monoxide probably not mind over matter it's fun it's it's true in many cases but I have a little shred of doubt and mind over matter doesn't really benefit from even the smallest shred of doubt I'll save my moments of mind over matter for moments when I have more confidence But yeah, I don't know that I have too much more to say, only that, you know, it's a time of balance. It's a time of, you know, what is strengthening your soul? What is giving you stability inside of yourself? What is allowing you to, you know, maintain awareness over your own capacity for darkness, your own propensity to behave darkly? Because we see a lot of people doing that. There is a hellish temptation for people to behave darkly, whether it's as an individual or a group, it is there. And it may be building. As, as much of it as we've seen already, we know that there can always be more. And we shouldn't visualize that and manifest it but we should be aware of it in order to avoid it. Which is a difficult thing to do sometimes. 
Because, you know, you think about New Age people and their idea. If, if you think it, if you're thinking about it, you might manifest it. Oh, you're thinking about the thing you don't want, huh? Well, you might very well manifest that thing by, oh, you're not thinking just totally positive about the outcome you want? Well, you're going to manifest the worst thing ever. You're going to manifest the apocalypse. As silly as that is, there's also truth to it. There is truth to that New Age idea of manifestation, because it's not fair to say that it is a purely New Age idea. It's actually a far more ancient idea that you will find in Scripture of all kinds, in ancient philosophy of all kinds. But you shouldn't be afraid to think about certain outcomes that you want to avoid either. Because you want to know what the, you want to know what could happen so that you can avoid that possibility. That's a smart move. You can even just take it away from any kind of, you know, spiritual, you can take it away from any kind of, you know, more out there idea about manifestation and just say that it, it is a smart move intellectually to know what you don't want and make decisions to avoid that, just like you should know what you do want when you know you truly want it and make decisions that orient your behavior toward that in that Napoleon Hill think-and-grow-rich sense of embedding that idea into your subconscious you should embed that thing you want into your subconscious so that you can unconsciously act out in ways that help you achieve that thing. But you can also do that with things you want to avoid. It's just helpful to have the balance of things you want and don't want rather than just things you don't want, as well as a willingness to accept the emptiness or void or whatever synonym or substitute you want to use to describe that space of nothing or neutrality or whatever else it is to you at any given time, and it can be both. It can be a neutral nothing, or it can be just nothing, or it can be some form of compromise. It can be some form of hybrid. but uh, it also could be some form of you know it could be some form of zen moment as well where those being where those beginningless crimes are wiped away cuz those beginningless crimes seem to be wiped away in that in between space at least in my experience. And it's still fairly new to me. But in my experience, those beginningless crimes seem to be cleaned up and wiped away when you were neither wanting or rejecting, when you were no longer seeking, holding on, it's the moment between the easy come and before the easy go. It's, it's somewhere between easy come and easy go. 
or actually, no, actually, I think a better way of putting it would be it's after easy go and before easy come. Because easy, if it's between easy come and easy go, that means something is here. Whereas if it's after the easy go and before the easy come, well, that's that sweet moment before rebirth where there may be nothing, where there may be true neutrality, where there may be the ultimate balance. And what's more total than that? Because the ultimate balance is wholeness. And it's a good question maybe to wrap this up would be, do I feel whole right now? Do I feel like I am part of the wholeness, the wholeness? I don't know. And it feels good to not know. Because not knowing whether I feel part of the wholeness right now almost feels like it's that sweet spot after the easy go has happened and before the easy come has started the process all over again. Because I know the moments where I'm like, I'm, I'm just feeling the wholeness. I feel like I'm totally in tune with God. I'm just totally on the same page as God. I mean, I, I had a day like that probably a week or less than a week ago, there was this day where I just woke up and I was just like, this is one of those days where I'm just, I'm just on the same page as God, as the Dharma, the real reality. Because like I was saying earlier, you know, it, the, these, these ideas like spirituality and magic, and while those are terms that I use, partially because they're fun, partially because they describe things in a certain way, to me, they are synonymous with reality. And when I realize that this whole existence, with all of its magic, all of its you know spiritual energy, that that itself was no different than the reality that you live and are always living. And of course, you have to maintain a certain discipline, or you maybe don't have to, but it, it helps to maintain certain disciplines to stay in tune with that, it was still having a realization that reality is that spiritual epiphany. Reality is that magic. And it doesn't require secrets, it doesn't require locked boxes, curtains, robes, candles, beads, symbols. Although all of those things are wonderful too. All of those things are fun. All of those things can be powerful. But it doesn't need those things to do what it does, because it is that powerful, it is that present. And it isn't something that you have to follow some sort of 
it's not something you need to read a book to learn about. Although, you know, you can. But it's not an intellectual exercise. It is something Gnostic. It is some sort of experiential knowledge that transcends data. It's not a set of bullet points. It's not a list. It's not a a, a set of things you should or shouldn't do, although your intuition will inform you of those things and it helps to remind yourself of what those things are or what they might be. Good conduct, right and wrong. Since you are a thinking, talking, speaking, writing, communicating human, it helps to say those things out loud and not take them for granted. But it doesn't require those things. This magical spiritual reality that is filled with smoke, but isn't limited to this smoke-filled world. It's far emptier than that. It's far cleaner than that. It's far clearer than that. Buddhists call it Dharma. It's the true reality. But it's also this reality that we're living. And while some might argue that the the Dharma is beyond that, it's this too. That's my belief, that's my experience, and that's why I don't subscribe to any sort of orthodoxy or set system, even though I pull from many of them. That's why I'm less attracted now to things that attempt to hide themselves, things that think they need to thrive on obscurity like fish in the lowest depths of the ocean. I'm much more inspired by the upward and outward growth of trees trying to get light. But that's just the path my, you know, my own soul has taken. And it feels less and less deliberate. It feels less and less... It feels like less and less of a choice. It feels like less and less of a multiple choice question. And it just feels like what it is. which is some sort of new perception on the reality that always was and always is there. And when you stay focused on that, not obsessively, not searching that reality all the time, not trying to mine it, but when you stay aware of it, it's difficult for one thing or another to weigh you down too much. It's difficult for one aspect of it, one surprise, one turn around the corner, 
to weigh you down, even though you do get weighed down. But it doesn't last. And that's a, a lesson that everybody's learning now. The reality they thought they understood, the good and the bad, easily comes and easily goes. While everyone had complaints a year ago about whatever it was that was bothering them, some of those complaints are gone and they've been replaced by other complaints, possibly more serious complaints. But hopefully the virtues of their life that they had then are either still available to them or they've found new ones. I hope. Um, but in closing, <laughs> it sounds silly to say, in closing, it's difficult to wrap up this talk. Because, you know, this isn't rehearsed. This is just... Just talking about where I'm at. Talking about my relationship to what I would call the real reality around me. Which is a non-stop spiritual experience. It is a non-stop... You know, it's 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 a not it's it's the magic never ends. The adventure never ends. It's the adventure of a lifetime, even when you're stuck indoors, in smoke world. the The adventure never ends when you are aware of what reality actually is, and when you realize that. It's reality that has taken on so many different names. Reality is the thing that has been given so many different names by so many different people in so many different languages. And at the end of the day, it's what we are. So to be aware of that reality is to be aware of what we are. And that means being able to bring the darkness in, make the darkness conscious, as Jung said. But to also let it go. To also be able to grow upward and outward toward the light. To mimic trees, to mimic plants. To be excited for a meal like a dog. It's all part of that process of being alive. It's all part of the process of being a participant in this magical, spiritual, yet also mundane reality. But it's mundane in the best possible way. It's mundane with a full range of motion and mobility. So you can turn that mundane into magic at any given moment. 
And sometimes if you're really lucky, you're not even the one who has to do it. It just happens. So be on the lookout for that. Don't expect it. Don't try to find it. But as things continue to be strange and scary, maybe sad, be on the lookout for those moments when things just happen. Because that is how you stay astonished. That is how you stay excited. That is how you continue to strengthen your soul under any circumstance. And that's the way you want your life to go. That's the way you want to feel when you're at the end of this current life. As you leave this body, you want to feel that your soul has the strength to do whatever it needs to do, to go wherever it needs to go. Even if that means it's the end of the road. And maybe as you draw closer, you'll have a better idea of where, if anywhere, your strong little soul is going to go. This land is mine God gave this land to me This brave, this golden land to me And when the morning sun Reveals her hills and plains I see a land where children can run free So take my